Good afternoon. I want to say a welcome to all of you, and I thank you for coming today and um, being here with us to uh, hear another amazing story of God in somebody's life. Um, Brian Hunter is here to speak with us today. Before I have Charles Waring come up and introduce him, I just want to make a quick announcement. Um, a book has been published, and some of you have already got a copy, but if you don't have a copy, it's, the title of the book is Your Forever Friend, and it's a story that Pringle Franklin wrote about uh, Preston Hill, sort of a something of a biography of Preston's life. And along with it, you know, Preston was our speaker about three or four years ago, I think to kick off in the fall, one fall uh, men's lunch season. But anyway, this book is published and it's available and it's cheap. And uh, it, it's, it's $10. I, was, I, I asked him, I said, should I ask for 12 and get a cut? And, and, and uh, um, the answer came back, ask for 15. <laughs> But anyway, this book and the a copy, a CD of Preston's talk that he gave is a freebie that gets thrown in with it. So if you'd like to get a copy of the book following the lunch today, then Laura Hip's out here in the lobby selling them. So please take advantage of that and buy a copy to give to somebody. It's an amazing story. Having said that, I would like to ask Charles to come up and introduce our speaker. Good afternoon. Uh, probably roughly 10 years ago, Edward Hart gave me a call. He said, Charles, there's a fellow from Alabama who's down here, and he's doing some writing for Charleston Magazine, and he's a good Southern boy. He likes to hunt and all that. I think you ought to talk to him. He might be a good author for the Mercury. And I said, that sounds fine. So Brian and I met and bonded. and. Uh, Next thing you know, he was writing for us and what have you. And, but we went down a lot of other roads. He had challenges in his life, and I had challenges in my life, and we prayed for each other. We walked through those times together. We went hunting together many times, bonded further, um, and just grown together, grown to be good buddies. And I've, I've enjoyed watching Brian and his wife Elizabeth raise three children and um, in Brian's various uh, professional roles he's played in the community have always impressed me. Um, but I, as I was telling somebody the other day, Brian's not um, a Kamya, he's one of the guys who should have been here. And I, and I think he's all right, he's a real Charlestonian. Anyway, y'all gonna enjoy what he has to say and uh, I welcome my friend Brian Hunter. Well, that leaves me a bit speechless, I have to say. Um, when Charles first uh, wrote me a couple of weeks ago asking if I would be willing to do this, the only direction he gave me is that I would share an experience with you, which I find to be uh, really rather brave and bold of him, because I can tell you about anything. But um, 
I won't try to tell you just about any experience, but I want to really talk to you about uh, what it means to be part of the body of Christ and how that has demonstrated itself in, uh, in my life um, through some experiences that Charles alluded to. Um, I want to take a real quick, just sort of informal survey, just so I get the lay of the land here. Uh, a little bit about faith experiences here. How many folks here would sort of identify as Anglican or being in the Anglican tradition? What about Lutheran? Uh, do we have any Lutherans? Baptists? Roman Catholics? One, okay, so uh, that's good, helpful, just because. <laughs> Presbyterians, of course, sorry. Good. Um, well, the reason I ask that is just I like to know uh, uh, sort of how uh, um, I'm talking to you all because I want to start off from sort of a little bit higher level and talking about uh, ways that we talk about Holy Communion. Um, and that will make sense to my experience, or I hope to make sense of that before I get too far down the road. Um, but, you know, the way that in different faith traditions we talk about communion, I think, is all in part uh, sort of important and truthful aspects about it. Uh, from the Baptist experience typically talks, uh, refers to communion as the Lord's Supper, which is, I think, important because it recognizes the fact that uh, the, that it was instituted by Christ, or they refer to it as the Last Supper, which... Uh, reminds us that it is a commemorative meal, uh, remembering Christ's sacrifice, as he instructed us to do. Um, from the Lutheran or an Anglican perspective, we, we talk about it as Eucharist a lot of times, which um, means sacrifice. So we concentrate or focus on the sacrifice, and even in liturgy we talk about uh, the act of uh, communion being a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving in response to the sacrifice that Christ made for us ultimately on the cross for our redemption. Um, and then in the Catholic sense, of course, the entire service we, we typically refer to as the Mass, which I think um, depart, imparts an important aspect of communion that sometimes we often forget in the Protestant aspect of it. It's really a curious term, Mass. Um, so it actually comes from the Latin word which means dismissal which is kind of interesting, you come into this place that is sacred and set apart, and your whole word for it isn't come, it's go. And of course, we, uh, we, we recognize that in other faith traditions in one way or another at the end of the Eucharist service, and um, as an Anglican, the, the priest usually says something along the lines of go in the name of the Lord to serve and love, uh, to, to love and serve Christ. And so the idea behind that is that um, in sacramental experience, that it's not just something that happens to us, although we often talk about the sacrament as being administered to us or served to us, but ultimately it's also something that is supposed to empower us and feed us to give us the strength, the spiritual strength to go out and do God's work in the world. And um, ultimately, that's tied to this whole concept of us as Christians being part of the body of Christ. St. Paul uses that metaphor in several places. In 1 Corinthians 12, he talks us about, about our baptism grafting us into the body of Christ. 
in Ephesians 4 when he's talking about the different ministries that have been given uh, to us all according to our gifts. He talks about us also as part of the body of Christ, and he talks about us, um, uh, about the body of Christ uh, sharing in each other's suffering, and I think that that's, uh, that's an important aspect. Um, so we talk about the, the sacrament of Holy Communion as receiving the body and blood of Christ, and we think about it in terms of being made one body with him as well, but we're also one body with each other. And so it reflects that sort of Trinitarian aspect of relationship of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in perfect communion. So our response to, to the communion and the grace that we receive in communion reflects that. Our individual relationship to God, our communal relationship to God, but then also, importantly, our relationship to each other. Um, and it reflects also our response to the world. Uh, referring again to St. Paul, um, in Romans 8, he talks about creation groaning together. And I think that the word that he uses there is so critical. He doesn't talk about the world. He doesn't talk about earth. He doesn't talk about the universe. He says creation. So at the center of that principle is the idea that we are part of God's creation. And this idea of creation groaning together. Of course, we're, there are moments in time where we're acutely aware of that. This week, particularly in light of what happened in, um, in Las Vegas, uh, with a seemingly senseless murder of uh, 59 people and injury of uh, countless others, um, it really brings home to bear. And of course, in our own community, when we think about the, uh, the Charleston Nine who were, who were murdered. Um, and so we have this constant reminder that we live in a broken world. But it's interesting, St. Paul follows that idea of creation groaning. He extends that metaphor by saying as if it's in childbirth. Of course, his readers would have instantly recognized this allusion to the fall. Uh, in the creation story and mankind's first disobedience, uh, part of uh, the punishment for that, God's response to humanity for that, was this idea that childbirth would be painful, but at the same time it also brings life. So it's not meaningless, mindless suffering, even in an event like we saw that we try our best to make sense of, Hank and I were talking about it briefly as we sat and ate, that um, it, we try to, uh, the human nature is to try to make sense of these things, and um, sometimes the only sense that we can make of them is just this recognition that we just live in a broken world that's groaning for redemption. But St. Paul leaves us with that hope. And the people of Israel had an acute sense of this also. I don't know if you realize it or not, but um, something like 68 of the Psalms are actually laments. And a lament, of course, is a song that's sung from this place of deep sorrow. And it's a recognition that things are not as they should be. And again, those, uh, those, song, those psalms of lament are kind of divided into two kinds of laments. Some are individualized, and a lot of those are a response to the individual, David's uh, feeling of alienation from God because of his own sin. The others are communal, where Israel would sing in unison about this idea of exile, of being 
separated from God. I think about um, Psalm uh, 170, where it says, O Lord, why are you absent from us so long? Why is your wrath so hotly kindled against your people? Remember the tribe of your inheritance. And then David, of course, uh, in that great psalm, De Profundis, where he sings out, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. And it's this understanding that we are in a place of deep despair or sadness, but it's not meaningless, it's not random. It's because we recognize because of our own shortcomings, our own sin, that we've chosen to separate ourselves from God. And so to bring that back around, this idea of this collective idea of the church body as being one body, um, I'm always puzzled and a little bit, um, a little consternation. I don't know, you've probably all encountered this before, and I've probably been guilty of saying it myself before in times of my life where you start talking about faith with somebody and they say, well, I'm a Christian, but I don't really see any need to go to church. I just kind of worship God in my own way. But um, our response to Christ is not a multiple choice test. God, Christ did not give us that option of going it alone. Uh, if you notice, I mean, the example that he set, set for us, not only in the Old Testament, sort of typifying what was going to happen later, he called a people, Israel, unto himself. When he began his ministry here on earth, the first thing he did is he called disciples to him. So Christ's work on earth while he was here and after his ascension has always meant to be a communal thing. And so uh, that's the experience that I want to talk to you about briefly today. Um, few years ago, about eight years ago, six, seven years ago, actually, uh, my wife Elizabeth and I seemed to be uh, on top of the world. We both had uh, great jobs. We were comfortable. We had a wonderful three-year-old son, two-and-a-half-year-old son, Henry. We had just, uh, we were expecting our second child. Uh, we had just gotten back from a baby moon in the Bahamas. We were tan and svelte. Well, I was svelte. Um, and uh, we came back, and we were at our 20-week ultrasound. Um, and you know that's always a joyous occasion. They call it the anatomy uh, ultrasound. And you know, initially, the technician who was doing the ultrasound was, it was all sort of happy. And um, then I noticed that she'd stopped talking. Uh, and the thing seemed to be dragging on a little longer than made us quite comfortable, and she said, I'm going to have a doctor come and look at the ultrasound. And so she stepped out of the room, a doctor came in, and we thought, well, that's odd, that's, that didn't happen with our first child, and he started looking, and he sort of just gave a little grunt, and he walked out of the room, and a few minutes later, he came in and said, I've just made an appointment for you at Children's Hospital in the um, pediatric cardiology unit, and we said, when? And he said, right now. And of course, we were both just blindsided by this, didn't see it coming. Everything up to that point seemed to be rolling right along the way you would expect a pregnancy to go. And I remember that we both just walked kind of in stunned silence over to MUSC, and um, they did a uh, echocardiogram, and the doctor came back in, and he said, grim look on his face, and said, the uh, 
fetus has, uh, that was the term used, but your, the fetus has something called hypoplastic left heart syndrome, which I'd never heard of before. And uh, essentially what it meant is that the aortic valve, which is the valve that oxygenated blood passes through into the body to distribute it throughout your body, was completely closed shut. And so the, the oxygenated blood coming into the heart, the gut body had nowhere to go. And so as a result of that, it caused sort of a downstream effect and caused a distortion of, uh, in the left side of the heart, um, which also damaged uh, mitral valve. And so we asked the doctor, of course, he said, well, what do we do about it? And he said, there's nothing that can be done. And we said, well, surely there's something. And he said, well, he said the prognosis is probable fetal demise. The baby will most likely die in the womb. Um, he said, but if for some reason uh, the baby does decide or does make it to term, uh, the most we would expect him to live would be six days. He said, in which case we would offer palliative, palliative care and there's nothing else really we could do about that. And I uh, said, what other options are there? And he said, there are no other options. My suggestion is to terminate the pregnancy. And uh, Elizabeth and I both looked at each other and we said, that's not an option, there has to be something else. And he said, well, there's a group in um, Boston Children's Hospital who are doing some sort of experimental uh, treatment in utero, you might want to look into it. So of course, we immediately got in the car, drove home, found the name of a doctor named Wayne Turetsky at Children's Hospital in Boston, who is the head of uh, fetal intervention, fetal cardiac intervention. And uh, long story short, we sent the uh, echoes to him to look at. He gave us a call back. We were shocked the next day and said, book a ticket to Boston. You're a good candidate for uh, fetal intervention. So we went to Boston and I was, we were both struck by the fact when we consulted and they were telling us about what the process that we were going to go through, that the doctors kept saying, this step that you're taking is really brave. And we thought, we don't see anything brave about it. It's, the only option we have, um, but we learned later uh, really precisely what he meant and are still experiencing that today. But um, so they did a in utero uh, balloon catheterization when our son's heart was no bigger than my thumbnail and went in to his heart, uh, ballooned uh, the aortic valve so that the blood could flow through. But um, it had damaged his heart, um, and so subsequently he's had five open heart surgeries to um, repair his mitral valve. So, um, you know, it's interesting when you reflect on Psalm 23, um, sometimes we like to think of that passage about the Lord leading us through the valley of the shadow of death, it's really, he doesn't say that he leads us around the valley of the shadow of death, it says that he leads us through it. And um, we've certainly experienced that with our son. Um, twice we've been in a critical situation where he's had to be med flighted to Boston for emergency uh, open heart surgery. And that feeling of leaving your child there in the pre-operating room and Facing the reality that you may never see him alive again is um, something no parent should ever have to go through, but we do. Um, but the remarkable thing about that is, is that when we experienced all this, we never experienced it alone. 
mean, I can look across this room and I see so many familiar faces. The community, the body of Christ, really did suffer with this. I could give you countless stories of things that people did, kindnesses, broadest meals. Uh, one face in here I recognize whose family were coming up to Boston at one time when um, George, our son, uh, was about to have open heart surgery and was in the hospital and uh, were going up there to vacation and took time out of their trip at their children's instigation to bring gifts to George so they'd have, have something to play with in the hospital. And, uh, and the remarkable thing about this is, is that, you know, when we went into it, we always thought about it in terms of, well, this is our deal. We'll go up there, we'll have this done, and we'll come back. But the, the remarkable thing about it is, is how we've been able in this process to meet other families who are going through or have gone through the same thing that we're going through and has allowed us to minister to those families, whether they're believers or not believers. And um, I think of one person in particular who is actually from Boston. Um, their son, Ari, um, had a similar heart condition to George and um, seemed to be doing really well for a while and then uh, went into cardiac failure of his own uh, await for a transplant for over a year, living in the hospital for over a year, uh, had the transplant, seemed to be doing fine, and then went into rejection. And uh, was in rejection and kind of kept in, in a, a controlled coma for um, about six or eight months. And uh, finally um, died um, from the complications of that. But we were up the last time George had um, his surgery, and uh, the family are Jewish, and, but they are cultural Jews, not uh, practicing Jews, and he asked me to go to lunch with him. And, um, he said, I understand that you and Elizabeth are Christians. He said, how on earth do you make any sense of, of this? He said, how can you recognize that there is a God when there can be such pain in the world, and when you're brought to a place where you really have somebody in that situation, ask a question like that. There are no glib answers to it. And um, but I was able to tell him that I said, you know, I said from a Christian standpoint, I have to recognize that this world is broken. I said you have to understand it coming from a Jewish tradition that uh, that we live in a broken world. We can't understand this, and part of this is human suffering this idea of creation groaning. And this was before his son Ari died. And uh, I don't know where he is right now in his journey about this, but um, you know, all we're asked to do is to bear witness to the promise of Christ. Uh, the Holy Spirit's work does the rest. So pray for, his, pray for Ari's dad. But um, anyway, this idea of community and communion and us being brought together in the body of Christ. I can't tell you how rich and vital it's been. There was a moment right after George had his fetal intervention. I was, Elizabeth, of course, was worn out. She was in the hotel. I was sort of wandering the streets of Cambridge, visiting a favorite bookstore there. And I called Michael Smith. Many of you probably know him. His wife, Amy, is the uh, director of Christian education here, and he turned out to be George's godfather. 
um, I called him. I don't know what prompted me to do it. And I said, Michael, I said, I am so angry at God right now. I said, I, I said it's not a crisis of faith. I said, it's not a matter of me not believing in God, but we're not on speaking terms right now. And, uh, you know, to his credit, Michael didn't say, I understand, that's completely understandable, I don't blame you. He said, you can't have that response. That's not what we're called to do. And he told me the hard words that I needed to hear who, that brought me back. And, but it was through the ministry of people like that and the ministry of so many of you here that uh, allows me to say my faith is not perfect, but it's being perfected in Christ. So I want to thank all of you. I hope that you all understand what a remarkable gift this is, that you're all gathered here together in this room together. Don't take it for granted. Cherish it. Spend time together even outside of this room. But um, bear each other's burdens and be a real true community of believers for Christ. Thank you so much. I want to thank Hank. Charles, thank you for the wonderful introduction. Thank you for the fine meal. It's a joy to be with you all today. Thank you very much.